Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci. Today, I have with me my special guest, Kylie Slavic. Now, when Kylie told me about her background as a spoken word artist who wrote and performed slam poetry and how she uses some of the same techniques to write marketing copy, I just knew I had to have her on the Author's Corner. Kylie discovered that grabbing attention and winning hearts works the same way in marketing as it does in art. And since then, she's worked with Hollywood story consultants to better understand structure and neuroscientists to learn how the brain responds to story. She's generated over $20 million in revenue with clients in the transformation space, including Sounds True, Astrology Hub, HeartMath Institute, and several others. In our interview today, Kylie provides some incredible insight into the brain chemistry of how readers respond to what you write and how a turn of phrase can either turn on or turn off your reader in an instant. I learned so much in this interview. I can't wait to share it with you. Prepare to have your mind blown. So welcome, Kylie, to the Author's Corner. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. I'm so excited to have you here today because, as I recall from our initial conversation, when you started getting into some of the insights that you have around brand story, I got so excited that I was just like, stop talking. (laughs) Because we have to capture this in our actual interview. So I'm so delighted that day has finally arrived. Me too. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) So let's start by just kind of going back a little bit and please share with our listeners, like, how did you get to the point where you are now in your work? Like, what is the Reader's Digest version of Kylie's journey? <laughs> it's, a, it's quite a story. I will give you the compressed version. I started writing poetry when I was really young, I think nine And after I graduated from college at University of Florida with an English degree, which at that time, everyone would ask me, what are you going to do with that? And I think people respect arts a lot more now than they did when I was in college. But I had to always answer that question with, I'm not really sure. And when I graduated, I was living in this little small town, Gainesville, Florida, and a group of my friends and I decided that there wasn't enough poetry happening in that town. And so we created a venue. We called it Third Eye Spoken. And we were like 22, 23 running around just trying to do poetry. And so it was a particular style of poetry that people would call slam poetry. So it has a lot of like hip hop undertones and it's usually very raw. So we did that for many years and I loved it, but I was poor. And at a a certain point of time, I realized I need to get it together here and do something else. So I went to massage school, started doing body work, 
I liked the business side of it more than I liked the actual healing side of it. I didn't really have the constitution to do as much body work as is necessary to make a career out of it. So at a certain point, I was so passionate about like client attraction and how to get clients and all this kind of stuff that a lot of the schools, there's a lot of like holistic schools. There's acupuncture, there's massage school where I was living. They started asking me to teach. And I thought, this is way better. I love this. <laughs> so I ended up just diving into internet marketing, digital marketing. And my first business, I called, I slapped up this website and I called it the art of healing online. And I had no idea what I was doing, but it was cool. And then well, there's a few other things that happened after that. But fast forward to, I was managing an affiliate program for a woman coach, very successful coach. And she asked me to write her Facebook ads. And I'm always one of those people that does crazy things. Even if I don't know how, I'm like, I'll do that, no problem. So I was leading an affiliate program and the woman, very successful female coach in Santa Barbara, she asked me to write her Facebook ads for that launch. And I had no idea how to do that or what I was doing. I was very untechy, but I taught myself how to do Facebook ads in two, three days. And our very first ad that we wrote it had like a 2000% ROI. And I didn't know that that was a big deal because I had no idea what I was doing or nothing about paid ads. And sort of to tie it back to the beginning of the story, what I learned about it was that when I was doing all that poetry, and you have three minutes to tell a story that opens somebody's heart or changes their mind about something, that's what ads are too. So I was just doing what I had done as an artist. And it was really standing out on the internet, because most people follow these formulas. And people are like, Oh, man, you know, I've seen this a million times. And what I was doing was really connecting with people's hearts and really inspiring them. And so I really created my own style of advertising. And I've been doing it for nine years in the spiritual space, you know, we work with people like Eckhart Tolle and Sounds True and things like that and run their ad campaigns. And it's been so fun. And often I wake up in the morning and ask myself, how did this happen? You know? <laughs> yeah. And that was the thing that really grabbed my imagination is this idea of slam poetry <laughs> translating to Facebook ads. <laughs> yeah. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. Can you share with me, like, what are some of the qualities of a great slam poem that you find particularly effective in the marketing and advertising. But I also want to point out for our listeners that this actually translates to writing your book as well, mm -hmm. because it is really about developing and sustaining that emotional interest and connection in the work. But since we're on Facebook ads, I'd love to hear you talk about like, what are some of the qualities of a great slam poem that translate really well? to Facebook ads. Absolutely. And it does tie into books too, because it really comes down to having a good hook or creating enough intrigue for people to want to keep reading. And I know when we write books or when we write ads, there has to be this clear path of here's where you are now and here's what you're going to get. And it's kind of the same in a poem, but I would layer that with an extra layer of intrigue. So it's you start these poems out with a big question or a big statement or something that maybe is unbelievable. And then you prove it through a story. 
So it has to have a character. It could be me. I could be talking in first person and sharing a story about my life. A lot of times I did poetry about other people's lives and what was happening for other people. And sometimes I got very abstract and just kind of spewed philosophy, but those ones didn't go over as well. So a lot of times people really need to hear that story. So whether it was like a redemption story of somebody being in a hard place and overcoming it, or whether it was something about a story of something that was happening in the culture, you know, there's a lot of that as well. If you go to a poetry slam, you're going to hear a lot about current events and the artist's take on what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my life? What does this mean for us? And how can we reconcile what's happening versus what we feel? So there's a lot of different things like that, but it all comes down to having a good hook. And that's what I do in ads. You know, I wrote this ad recently about, have you heard of these famous failures? That was the headline. And it was this story about I juxtaposed all these stories about J.K. Rowling, you know, scribbling Harry Potter on a napkin and getting rejected 22 times or whatever it was, and Steve Jobs getting fired from Apple, you know. (laughs) So what I know about entrepreneurs is that they're afraid of failure. There, A lot of them are also afraid of success. So I kind of hung a story around the emotional experience of my audience. And I think that we can do that with books as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking too, uh, something else that I know is true about slam poetry is its brevity, right? And how you're able to convey a very complete image in very few words. Would you say Mm -hmm. that also is something that translates to the ads? Yeah, I have a tendency to write pretty long ads. Like most people, when I start working with them and I write their ads, they're very confused about that. They're like, why is this so long? However, the brevity, I do write short ads too. It just, it's context. It depends on what I'm trying to achieve with the ad. But even with a longer ad, it's pretty short still. You know, 600, 800 words is not a lot of words. So the main thing I need to accomplish in a very short period of time is getting people interested, like showing them something they've never seen before. Now, maybe they've seen the concept, but I'm wrapping it in idea or a presentation that they've never heard of before. And I know we that's what people have to do with trying to pitch a publisher, right? It's like, I've never seen this before. This is interesting. So that's the first thing I want them to think. And then I want to answer the question, what's in this for me? What am I going to get? Why do I care? If I click on this, am I going to get this immediate gratification Well, those are two key elements of the saleable concept for a book. So I'm loving this. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, totally. Right. And it's that unique in the marketplace. Like, why is this different? Why do we need this book? Why should we publish your book when so many people are talking about this topic, right? And this comes up a lot, right? In the health, fitness, medical, personal development arenas, which is also where your work is, right? In this wellness kind of area is wellness on all levels of being. Do you find it particularly challenging to help people in these really noisy spaces differentiate? And if so, how do you do it? That's a great question. You know, I don't feel like it's that challenging for me because I have a finger on the pulse of every message that's going out in my industry. So I always know how to tweak it a little bit. And even if it's just talking about Harry Potter, I know that that was an ad for somebody that did entrepreneurial training. And I know that there weren't any other ads on Facebook that were opening with Harry Potter versus Steve Jobs all in one ad. And so sometimes it's not even differentiating the person. 
It's just being able to make an emotional connection with the audience. And that is what differentiates the person because a lot of people can't do that. It's shocking. Yeah. That's so brilliant. That's so brilliant. (laughs) So you're differentiating like how you're opening the conversation Mm -hmm. so that it's a pattern interrupt for the person looking at the ad. And I'm going to add, or the reader, right? Because again, it's true. Like changing context or reframing, like how you're coming at the conversation is also really important. What was the second point that you said right before you got into that one? Because I wanted to pick up that thread. Yeah, the what's in it for me. Yes, so important, the what's in it for me. So uh, speak a little bit to that because this is such a big deal with books. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to tell me an awesome story on Facebook. And even if it doesn't relate to me, I might get engaged in it because it's interesting. And like you said, it's a pattern interrupt and our brains love that. So we're hardwired to scan for, is this a threat or is this something I like, right? So that pattern interrupt engages the mind enough to try to figure that out. That's how I see it. But if we don't answer, how is this going to help me? Then it just becomes another ad or another piece of content people like, but it doesn't translate into sales. And so I have to deliver what's on the other side of it. And essentially what we were doing with that Harry Potter and Steve Jobs ad is we were talking about how it tied into how everybody has their own unique genius and that we don't need to follow the same formulaic path to success. And Sephora had a webinar about finding your signature genius and building your work around that. And so for me is this idea of, okay, I've been out there, I've tried to do this the way everybody told me to do it. It didn't work because I'm not a cookie, like I can't be squeezed through this cookie cutter way of doing business. And so somebody that's had that pain of like, I've spent a hundred grand on business coaching and I have nothing to show for it. Now we're saying, look, don't go out there and try to do what everybody's telling you, but let's start from the inside out instead of the outside in. And so for people that have had that pain, there's a huge what's in it for me. What's in it for me is, hey, look, you are the brand. You are the product. Let's build everything else from that. And so people love that message, you know, and that's a message that obviously a lot of people have in the business training space. They go kind of like counter to what has been presented for the last 10, 20 years. And that's a great way to do it. So that promise or that claim also needs to be backed up with social proof or like this has worked for other people or this is how I did it. So that's like a sub element of what's in it for me. It has to also prove, well, how did this work for other people? Because if you're just kind of up here blowing smoke, I don't want anything to do with it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. And that's also of a book, right? Where you have to be able to not only say, this is my theory of how to shift this area of your life. But here's some anecdotal stories of people that I've worked with. Maybe here's some statistical data on how things go. So all of that social proof and third-party verification is so, it can be so useful as well. Yeah. It is. And even in a book, if you look at the cover, who endorsed it in that first couple of pages? Because I know from experience with publishing that, that's a really big deal to publishers, you know, who's endorsing your book. Absolutely. That's a key element of a book proposal, right? If we can deliver a book proposal to an agent and ultimately a publisher that has a few notable names on there for endorsers, that's a big selling point. But I want to go back to what you said about the book cover, because one of the things that essentially like a book, and we're talking, of course, nonfiction, instructional Mm -hmm. type books, 
But the subtitle is or should be <laughs> the what's in it for me statement, essentially, right? That the subtitle totally. should be communicating to the potential reader, this is what you're going to get out of the book. Mm-hmm. So you can have a nice, punchy, memorable, short title, but that subtitle is where you're going to tell them, this is why you should read this book. Absolutely. And it's the same thing in copywriting. If I'm writing a sales page, that first line is either going to be something that grabs people's attention really fast, like something weird, or it's going to be something really direct, like what this is. And then that second line on a sales page, it's going to say something like learn to meditate in 15 minutes a day and cure your insomnia or something, you know, it's just going to be it's usually telling people you can have this thing without what you don't want. And it's not going to be that hard, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's your formula for the saleable uh, sentence, right? The what's in it for me sentence. Here's what you're going to get. So you can have this without having to experience that, this other thing. Right. Like get spiritual without having to scale the Himalayas. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Find enlightenment (laughs) without. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Give up all your worldly possessions and live on a map. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's good. Someone should write that. There you go. We have a new course. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. So this is great. We now have a picture of how you can, you know, what I'm really getting out of this is there's a lot of tools in effective advertising that Mm -hmm. can be incorporated throughout a book and Mm -hmm. to support that transition from reader to client or customer without being salesy. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so maybe talk a little bit about that idea, because one of the things that is so annoying when you're reading anything, whether it's a Facebook ad or a book, is feeling like you're being sold. So what are some of the techniques or frameworks that you utilize to in your copywriting so that readers don't have that experience, so they feel like it's more like a conversation? Absolutely. This is a huge topic. And I think there was a shift in advertising when social media came out where they used to call it interruptive marketing. You're watching a TV show and you are listening to the radio and you essentially have no choice but to watch the ad. You know, you could flip stations, but they all play the ads at the same time. So you're going to end up watching an ad. And then when social media came about, it's like you don't have to. You can scroll past it. You don't have to click on it. And so what that did was it created this whole different type of marketing that we call empowerment marketing. And it's based on the idea that the person reading the ad has the power, not the advertiser. They have the power to choose. They have the power to read or not read. They have the power to comment. They have the power to ask questions or challenge the advertiser. And it's this whole conversation that everybody can see. And so what had to happen, there's a critical shift had to happen. And certainly not everybody has made this shift, but those who have not are realizing that they need to, and they're calling people like me or our agency to see, and I just kind of laugh, like if your business isn't really empowering people, then we're not going to help you with an ad, you know? So I've definitely said that to people before. And what the idea of empowerment marketing is, you're essentially telling people who they could be if they interact with your brand and it has to be true. So if it's not true, it's going to fail you and you're going to have to manipulate because you're selling a lie and you're going to have to strong arm people to buy a lie because people can smell a lie. Like they know, they get it. 
And so what we really do is look at what is the emotional experience people want to have or what is the identity people want to see themselves as having? And can we speak to that in an empowering way? Can we show them that they can make these changes? One of my mentors, Jonah Sachs, he wrote a book called Winning the Story Wars. I think it's the most important book of my career. Oh, the story <laughs> the story wars? Yeah. Have you yeah, read it? I've read that book. I love that book. It's oh gosh, so it's good. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that Jonah talks about is essentially we don't show people in our ads that they are great. We show them how to be great. And so that's really like when you ask for a structure or a formula, that's really what it is. And I refer often to Nike and Apple because I think that they're the best story marketers on the planet. Like, I don't think anyone's really done it better. And the sort of core story of Apple is disenfranchised weird artists can contribute at a really high level. And it's everybody who's a little bit weird has an apple, you know, so everybody that's create pretty much everybody that's creative. Yeah, me too. You know, it's not because it's a better hardware, you know, a lot of hardware people even say like, this is not built as well as a Dell or a PC, but we still have them. And, you know, with Nike, it's like, they don't come out and say, you're awesome. You're amazing. Wear our shoes. It's more like, if you watch their stories, it's kind of a story of hard work pays off. And with a little bit of determination and persistence, you can be great. And so it's really about showing people how to be who they want to be. And if you can do that, you don't need to hard sell. It's just yeah. off the table. And I am just having goosebumps as I'm hearing you speak, because I'm thinking of having watched the Nike brand marketing for as long as I can remember. And this whole idea of just do it, right? And how it's... yeah. But it is, if they never say you're going to automatically be great by wearing our shoes, right? What they're saying is like, this is a tool to help you achieve your maximum greatness. And it is, it's so inspiring, you know, and I think of like one with the woman running early in the morning, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> right. And these things that just really speak to, I mean, it's such a great example, which is why I'm unpacking it some more, because it just speaks to a deeper reason for why am I even thinking of athletic shoes? Totally. Right. It's not about how it looks to others. It's not about that kind of weird prestige of like a certain kind of sneaker. Right. It's they're going for in their marketing, they're going for something deeper. And again, this is so vital to books on every level, right? Title, subtitle, how you're framing the whole conversation of really showing your reader how empowering your reader to see how they can become great with the work, putting in the work. Yeah. And I believe if you can accomplish that, you're good. You know, you don't have to sell because people are asking you, how can I be involved with what you're doing? Like Apple never says buy our computer. They don't talk about really the features of the <laughs> computer. They don't need to. <laughs> that's, that's really true. What's in well, it? <laughs> once, in while, yeah, once in a while, they might talk about like a camera upgrade or something right. like that. But again, that's knowing their audience because people buy Apple for better artistic features, cameras, audio, things like that. Mm -hmm. And that is another point too. And I'm just keep drawing this connection to books because I see so much value here for our listeners, right? Mm -hmm. About, you know, an expert has so many details in their own mind of their process of outcomes of certain steps that you need to take, nuances up the yin-yang, right? Yeah. But the question is, which details are going to resonate emotionally 
with your reader? Mm-hmm. Which details are going to capture the imagination of your reader and call them forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the broader answer to that question is any detail is going to because a lot of people miss the sensory detail aspect of writing. So it's that old difference between showing versus telling. If you show me something, even if I don't necessarily relate to it 100%, I'm going to be more drawn in. So maybe you're a mother of seven people and you're giving me a day in your life and I don't have kids. I can still relate to an aspect of that story because maybe that mother feels like stressed out and busy or maybe she feels guilty because she's taking care of all the kids and has a little bit of resentment, right? I'm going to think to myself, oh, there's things in my life that I feel like are obligations that I don't want to deal with. So there's that. And then if you want to take it a step further and be more specific, then you really just look at what is the day in the life of my reader? What are they thinking when they wake up? What are they thinking when they go to the gym? What are they thinking when they eat dinner? And sharing details that match that experience. Yeah, that's so true. Again, it's reminding me of an exercise that I do with all of my clients when we're developing their saleable concept, which is really getting into the heart and mind of their ideal reader and choosing one person Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. literally inside themselves asking these questions, you know, attuning to the vibe of that person and Mm -hmm. really looking at and asking these questions of what keeps you up at night? You know, what are your hopes, dreams, desires? What are you afraid of? You know, we ask on both like the aspirational and also the avoidance side and we have absolutely right. And tapping into that emotional life of the ideal reader, because that's where all the decisions get made. Right. right? As you know, we make decisions emotionally, especially buying decisions, but many decisions, but we make buying decisions emotionally, and then we justify them intellectually. Right. Just going for the reader's intellect, you're not going to get that same level of engagement. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Very true. Yeah. So what other writing techniques or like, because I think this is so important. It's not even necessarily like a writing technique, but it's a way of approaching writing is what I'm really Mm -hmm. seeing that's building here. And that what I love and what's coming forward is that it applies really to any kind of writing for an audience. Mm -hmm. As far as I can see, (laughs) I'm trying trying to think if there's any. Yeah, I think it does. A lot of what I talk about, I didn't know this as I was figuring it out. I was really just shooting from gut instinct with everything I was doing. And then I had to learn the science of it because people kept asking me to teach it and things like that. So a lot of what we're talking about today really has a deep root in neuroscience. It's really about the way that the brain works. And, you know, one of my copywriting mentors talked about the triune brain and I off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly how it works, but the first level of the brain is that sort of reptilian safety, fight or flight And if we can't get past that, it will never go to the emotional centers or the logic centers at all. So one of the most important things is really making sure that whatever we're putting out there doesn't make our audience feel unsafe. So it's not too challenging in the beginning. Like we wait to challenge people more towards the end or after we've established a relationship. So we want to reiterate again, that this is something that they say that they want, and we're going to show them how to get it. And we're not really poking too much at things that make them super uncomfortable. That is so important. Absolutely. Because I think another aspect of keeping them out of that fear mode is to continually be encouraging, right? Mm -hmm. And even if you are going to introduce, like, say, an exercise that might be challenging, right, you can pre-frame that. 
so that mm-hmm. they understand, okay, so this one might feel a little harder, but here's some ways to navigate that and you can do it kind of, you know, exactly. That's sort of, yeah, sort exactly. Of like the kid at the side of the pool, letting them know you're there to catch them. Right. When, if they jump a hundred percent, exactly. And that's how we can always create safety, even when we are sort of pushing people a little bit. So just keeping that top of mind, you know, I think I've always told people, my clients and students that one of the most important jobs of a copywriter of a storyteller is to create safety for the listener. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm just so fascinated that you studied the brain science of how people are going to respond and react to the writing. What are some mm-hmm. other insights from that study that our listeners might benefit from having? Yeah, one of the people I studied the most, and he's such a nice guy, is a man called Paul Zach. And he was actually funded. He's done more research on story on the brain than possibly anybody because he was actually funded by DARPA because they wanted to, which is a weird thing, but they wanted to study the effect of storytelling on de-escalating violence in times of war. And so they gave him millions and millions and millions of dollars to do it. And what he did was he hooked people up to all these electrodes and studied their brain waves when they watched Super Bowl commercials. (laughs) which is a really funny thing. And what he found was on the more emotional commercials, like Google has some really tear jerkers. Budweiser does too, actually, which is a funny thing because it's just this like boring beer, but they have some really emotional stories that they played in the Super Bowl. And what he discovered was that storytelling spikes the oxytocin in the brain. And he calls it the moral molecule. Oxytocin will help us to feel connected. It will help us to feel safe. It will help us to feel comfortable. And there's only a few things that can stimulate this feeling of oxytocin in the brain, but it makes us lean in and want to connect. It's like the connection drug, basically. So you could also get it from eating chocolate. But that was one one of the biggest things I learned was exactly how storytelling impacts people to feel what they want to feel. Like a mother who has a newborn survives that lack of sleep by the production of oxytocin. It's like, okay, well, you know, this is a beautiful little baby and I'm going to just wake up at two in the morning and it's (laughs) going to be beautiful. And like, (laughs) so, you know, if you can really do that in your advertising and I encourage people to go to YouTube and search for the Google commercials and search for the Budweiser commercials because they will make you cry. I got to throw one in. I don't remember which one it was, but I remember when I was pregnant with my son, I cried at a Pepsi ad. Yeah. Super Bowl Pepsi ad. And it was around 1995, it would have been. So (laughs) if anyone wants to try to find that one on YouTube, (laughs) I remember thinking, this has got to be pregnancy hormones. I cannot believe I'm sitting here crying. (laughs) Yeah. There you have it. (laughs) Got a one-two punch on that one, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, that totally... And that oxytocin obviously is a bonding hormone as well. Exactly. And this is really interesting because one of the things that we need to accomplish in a book, especially when you're a subject matter expert, hopefully you're writing a book with some backend plan, right? Where you're going to be able to share something with your readers that they might pay more than $20 for, and you can really accelerate your your brand growth and your business growth and your income growth by doing so. And so one of the things that the unique aspects of a book is that you literally get anywhere from, let's say, six plus hours 
where you're just alone with this reader, right? Mm -hmm. Probably in bed with them. (laughs) And they're giving you their undivided focus and attention. Mm -hmm. And you can spend $30 million on a Super Bowl ad and not even get that for 30 seconds. So when we think of the power that is intrinsic in that author-reader relationship, especially when you look at it as a one-on-one relationship and not a one-to-many. And the reason Mm -hmm. I'm going over this is this part of what I'm gaining insight from your sharing is that part of this is probably biochemical. Part of this is that literally this person's brain is pumping out oxytocin if you are writing to them in the right way. They're being bathed, their brain is bathed in oxytocin while they're reading your book and they're bonding with you. And why is it that we feel so connected to some authors, right? That we feel that we have some kind of relationship with them. I'm just loving this because I'm for the first time making this connection that part of this is biochemistry. It is. But you can blow that opportunity too by being overly confrontational, overly presumptive. You know, one of the things that authors, one error that authors make in their writing is to say things like, I know you must be. Right, uh, right. Having this experience. And then what happens is, you know, I've been aware for a long time. What happens is that's a disconnect. Like, the, the, like right, totally. The conscious mind just says, screw you. You don't know yeah. me. I'm done. Don't tell me what to think or feel. Yeah. yeah. You don't know who, how I think. Right. But it also probably shuts off that oxytocin and puts them into oh, fear, defensiveness. Sure. It's going to trigger the wrong biochemical experience as well. Yeah. Things like that would produce like adrenaline and cortisol, which advertising a hundred years ago really relied on that. You know, they wanted to freak you out and present their product or service as the thing that's going to calm you down now that they've like totally freaked you out. And people still do that and it does sell. But what I believe it also does is creates a lot of refunds and a lot of bad PR and full that are not loyal. So if we want to create a loyal brand following, that is not the way to do it. Right. And the other thing that I hate in ads that's luckily or fortunately going out of style, but you still see is when they just hop on and start shouting at you. (laughs) It's like often with car dealerships do this a lot or sometimes some other things, but it's like, you know, and you're just like, shut up. But that can be also an error that can be made in a book, right? To give the reader the impression that you're like shouting at them versus speaking with them. Right. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love speaking with them. That's awesome. And yeah, in my line of work, that translates into ads where people put like all caps in the headline. I can't stand it. I do use like in a headline, I will capitalize every word, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to capitalize every letter. I find it so offensive. <laughs> it puts me on the defense, you know? Yeah, totally. Right. It's like yeah. yelling at me. Yeah, exactly. All capital letters is the equivalent of screaming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is such an interesting, I wonder what the brain science is behind that because it doesn't seem like it would be, but everybody has that experience. You know, it's pretty. Yeah. Unique. It feels attacking. It's yeah. like, I think I don't know the exact brain science, but what I would presume is that it's like when I talked earlier about the power being in the viewer or the reader, it's kind of like putting too much emphasis on the advertiser Mm -hmm. and like, hey, I deserve that much of your attention right away without creating any relationship first. And I think that, it, you know, our brains make these choices really milliseconds, you know, we're deciding, do I like you, do I not like you within a millisecond? So that type of presumptuous thinking that 
what I have to say is so important that I'm going to scream it at you is not something that people are going to lean into. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because <laughs> I, I think back to even my days of parenting you know, and, and nobody really responds well to pay attention because I'm yelling unless really the only time that's really <laughs> is if, if someone's about to step into a street with an oncoming bus, you know, maybe... Maybe then you should yell at yeah, them. But, exactly. that's <laughs> but the, yeah, that's the only time. <laughs> <laughs> or they're about to touch something very hot. But really, when we use it outside of that context, then it does become so much about the person delivering the message and not enough mm-hmm. about the person that you're... Absolutely. And that is a big mistake. You know, brands that make themselves the hero of the story, that's a huge mistake. Talk some more about that because I think that's a big one. And there's a lot of nuance there. So uh, there is uh, share a little bit more about that idea because that's a big one. Yeah. So brands that make themselves the hero come across as braggy and inauthentic and too much about them. And when you make the audience the hero, then what you're doing is really inviting them into the story. And we use Nike and we used Apple as a really good example of that, where if you watch a Nike commercial, they don't talk about, you know, these shoes are better than those shoes because blah, 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 right? Never. I've never heard them do it. What they do is they make a story of the unsung hero or the unlikely hero. And people relate so much to that story that they go, oh my gosh, like if this person can do it, I can do it. And that's what you want people to be thinking and feeling. That is how you make the audience, the hero. And again, back to neuroscience, I went to a seminar with a man named Robert McKee, and he wrote a book called Story. And it is probably the number two book in film school that people read. And if you look at the back of the book, he shows all the films that he kind of had a hand in. And they're usually that film that didn't follow the boring Hollywood formula, but it's like actually keeps you guessing. And you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? One of the things he said in the seminar that was priceless for me, and it stands out as the biggest takeaway was that you can have an underdog or an overdog. And underdog is what 99.9% of people relate to being. And the overdog is usually that 0.01% that's like high in politics or CEOs of oil companies or pharmaceuticals or something. And they see themselves as the overdog. And it's a very small percent of the population. And he said that people relate to that underdog. So if your story shows the unlikely hero, because more people relate to that, they're going to feel like they are in that story. And he said that coming out as the overdog, which is the all caps or the my brand is better than this brand or oh my God, follow me, that actually shuts people's brains down because they see it as the overdog. And what they see is the overdog is trying to block them from achieving their goals. So a really good story is almost always about the pursuit of a goal. It's almost, there isn't really a story without a character pursuing a goal. And so if you present as that overdog, then you're putting it in the mind of the reader or viewer that you're stopping them from getting what they want. Whereas if you show them that storyline of the unlikely hero, now they're like, oh, that's awesome. Like, I want Luke to defeat Darth Vader, you know, or I want William Wallace to get the English out of Scotland or whatever it is, right? So (laughs) so that's one way. There's multiple ways of addressing this issue, but that's one way. And I want to plus what you're saying, because one of the things I know is so effective in book writing 
and some authors are initially afraid to do it, is to share a story of your own failure or several stories of your own failures, of your own challenges. Mm -hmm. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone that we work with is very highly accomplished, right? And have done some great things. And yeah, easy for the reader to feel like, oh, I could never be like that, or I could never do something. Right. And so when you are willing to be vulnerable about your own experiences, some of the things you've had to overcome in order to be who you are today, that can Absolutely. be so enrolling and really help the reader find your story relatable, even if you are a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a top dog, right? If you're willing to share some of the challenges that you went through to get there, then you can make yourself relatable. Absolutely. And I find that a lot of the most successful people are willing to do that. Mm -hmm. Like Elon Musk, for example, like him or don't like him. He's kind of a weird guy, but (laughs) he shares in one of his biographies that someone else wrote about just how he got picked on so bad as a kid and how he liked girls that didn't like him because all he wanted to talk about was rockets and going to Mars and people. So we see this, he just became the wealthiest person in the world. And a lot of people could look at that and be jealous. I call it invoking empathy instead of envy. So a lot of people could look at him and be envious, but yeah, but if he's willing to share all these nerdy things about himself, now we're kind of like, you know what, that would kind of be cool if he got to Mars, maybe, you know, <laughs> oh, I, I love what you just said, invoke empathy, not envy. That is right. Oh, that's priceless. That's yeah. such a great way to encapsulate what we're talking about. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love that. It is. Yeah. It just made sense. Yeah. So, oh man, I want to just go back a little bit because there was a question I wanted to ask as just a follow-up. Like what are some other examples of missteps where an author can accidentally, or an advertiser can accidentally appear as they're trying to be big dog, even if that's not their intent? Because I think that this is the kind of thing that it's easy to unconsciously step in. Yeah, I think it's one of my friends talks a lot about selling the destination, not the plane. So Mm -hmm. if I'm selling a trip to Hawaii, I'm not going to talk about like the TVs on the flight and the air conditioning and the comfortable seats. I'm going to talk about the palm trees and the ocean breeze and the five star hotel and the food and the hiking. So that's really putting the reader in what they want at the center of the story. And a lot of people, I see this in the health and wellness world more than anything else, because there's a resistance to marketing. And so they fall back onto like, I have to explain what I do. And people don't often understand what they do. So then it becomes more important to them that they're heard and they're understood. And so instead of looking at what the person wants, they look at what they're doing and they almost explain it almost defensively. Like I do this thing and I went to this school and I learned this. And you see that on a lot of websites in particular, nobody really cares. So that's a big mistake I see people make is they talk about those features and what it is that they're selling instead of what the person actually wants. Now, there is a place and a time to speak about features of something or to speak of the system that you're selling, but it's not in that very first split second of whatever it is that you're doing. That's not the time for it. So that's one of the biggest mistakes I see people make and they don't know, like they're not trying to make it. They just feel that they're supposed to do that. And maybe they intuitively understand they have to differentiate, right? They're they're differentiating the wrong thing at the wrong time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Got another one? (laughs) Just one more if you. 
Yeah, I do. And we touched into it a little bit earlier, but it's that difference between showing and telling. Mm. So I could go up on stage and I can say, story marketing is where it's at. Here's the statistics. Here's the proof. Here's Mm. what corporations are doing to shift their advertising budget into story. And nobody really cares, but I could get up there and tell a story about how I discovered telling stories and talk about the struggles and the wins along the way. And now I've just told people, I've shown them why what I'm saying is true in a way that really engages them instead of telling them, in which case they won't care at all. Brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think it also, it's just common sense. Once you realize that that's the truth, then you can see how it's common sense because it's actually how human advancement has happened, right? Mm -hmm. Before even we had books, before we had anything in writing, everything was, all knowledge was passed down orally through telling. And we remember stories. We don't remember numbers. We don't remember statistics as well. What we remember is the story because we get that imprint. Maybe the oxytocin (laughs) helps us that memory probably. Right. And so we remember stories to the point that we're able to relate stories and hand them off. And so it's so intrinsic to being human being that we, our attention is drawn to stories, held Mm -hmm. to stories, and then we are actually able to relate and relay stories among one another. Mm-hmm. So it really is such an important piece of teaching. Mm-hmm. Another thing that is just popping into my mind is I was talking with one of my clients who has a friend who was an editor at a publishing house who was saying that it's interesting. I know that these kinds of books have existed for a while, but apparently there's a term for it now called prescriptive memoir where you're basically just telling a series of personal stories, but they have a Mm -hmm. point. They have a teaching point to them. But your story of your experience is showing them the point, Mm -hmm. not just telling them the point. And I know a great example that probably a lot of our listeners would have heard of is Make Your Bed. And I'm going to forget the poor, <laughs> written by the Navy Admiral, retired Navy Admiral, which I'm going to completely forget. But that's what it is. It's a, it's a bunch of chapters. It was a New York Times bestseller, a bunch of chapters where each chapter he tells a story or two and it has a point, right? And it's, mm-hmm. each chapter is a point about how to have a successful life. He built it out of a commencement speech, but they weren't calling it prescriptive memoir at the time, but that is a great example that anybody can find very quickly and check out. And I think it is a great way to share your story in a more highly publishable way to share your story Mm -hmm. than a Mm -hmm. memoir with a three-act arc and everything else. You know, that's a much tougher sell unless you are a very famous person. Yeah, I love that. I never heard of that before, but I think that's awesome. And it makes total sense to me why it's kind of trending upward yeah, I, I never heard of the term before, but I thought, oh, it's a, a very good term for, for this. I term. love it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on the leading edge. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are very close to the top of our hour. So do you have any parting thoughts or anything that you would like to share with our listeners that I didn't cover or that you would just like to leave our listeners to consider? The one thing, and we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, is get really good at hooks. So what is the hook of your book? What is the point? What is that main point succinctly that people, it may be an old idea, but how can you present it in a new way? And 
even your chapter titles really need to be hooks and your concept needs to be a hook. So anything you can read or watch on YouTube or read books about that has to do with the art of the hook that will serve you in everything you do for the rest of your life. It is the most important thing I do every day. And I only have like five minutes to figure it out. So it is something that you can get really good at fast. And another recommendation would be to look at other books in your niche and how are they doing that? What are their chapter titles? What is their title? And be aware of it and get one step ahead, you know, do it better. That is such great advice. And Kylie, thank you so much. This has been so valuable. I have learned so much. I know our listeners are going to as well. And so thank you again for being on the Author's Corner. Thank you. I learned a lot today too, which is always really exciting. So thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Great. Wonderful. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.